I thank you that your word does not return void, that no matter what I have said or continue to say, it's your word that plants in our hearts. So God, help us today to have your word planted in us. May it grow. Water it, Lord, and grow our faith to your glory forever and ever. Amen. Go ahead and sit down. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Um, this, uh, this week, it's not, it's not been a difficult week, but this, this sermon has been exceptionally difficult to plan for. Um, so um, throughout this week, I've really been in a, in a, in a state of lament. Um, I, I've... I've, I, I've really been lamenting the lack of peace in the world right now um, and, 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 and how quick we are to demonize others. Um, words like Democrat, Republican, immigrant, illegal, countless other words are used to trap others we disagree with and really we make our own boxes of prejudice and we operate sincerely out of them. Uh, we're quickly scorned, and we're quick to scorn others. And uh, we, we live in a warmongering world, don't we? A world that creates wars with, where arsenals of opinion and fact are combined and fired without hesitation. No consideration for what's, what damage could be done. So because of this sermon, I've really been in a, a state of lament. And I, I apologize for that. Uh, it's going to reflect in my tone of the sermon itself. But, um, but I've heard and read more hateful remarks um, that are common portions of our linguistic weaponry uh, than, than honestly we'd like to admit. Whether it's the phrase Trump supporters by CNN or the Dems on Fox News, we're divided and angry people. And then again comes the sermon. Rather, it's, it's really a wonderful passage we have before us today. Um, and, and if you haven't noticed, all these Beatitudes are really adding up to something. Um, Jesus did all of these things perfectly. He is our example and our hope. Uh, we, we're supposed to aim for all the Beatitudes, um, but we're only accomplishing them through the power of the Holy Spirit and the cleansing of Jesus' blood on our hearts. As God works his sanctification, which is just him making us holier and holier, uh, we become more like Jesus, and these Beatitudes, again, clearly express who Jesus is. So, let's read our text for today. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Good, I didn't say the wrong number. <laughs> Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So, what does that mean? How are we supposed to be peacemakers? What does it mean to even be called a son of God? These are questions I aim to answer in our sermon today, uh, though not particularly in that order. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll come at the questions through a couple different angles, trying to make sure we get a, get a good answer without being so, so solid and firm that we ignore everything else. Um, but first, let's talk about what being a peacemaker does not mean. 
Um, I, love, I, I love Greek because you can use it to trace meaning in a lot of things. Like when there's a big paragraph, you can figure out a flow of thought, right? Uh, the word peacemaker in the Greek is literally peacemaker, which is not that helpful in defining it. <laughs> so let's talk about what it doesn't mean, because in our world today where it's either shut up and get on board or silence is violence, um, it's easy to have various concepts of peacemaking poison our minds with unbiblical notions of what being a peacemaker should be. So peacemaker does not mean things like ensuring conflict never happens. Being a peacemaker also doesn't mean that you're running away from conflict. It also doesn't mean you're forcing people to get along when they don't want to which, by the way, describes the majority of my childhood. I was an only child, go to hang out with my cousins, everybody else hates each other, and I'm sitting there like, why? Why are you guys fighting? Doesn't Stop. It also, most importantly, doesn't mean sacrificing biblical truth just to keep peace. That's not what peacemaker means. Peacemaking involves none of those things. Um, but one commentator helpfully drew a line between a peacemaker and a peace breaker. Uh, in other words, we have to recognize that the pendulum can swing too far when we remember what peacemaking is not. For instance, if we're never to run away from conflict, we might think that we have to stand and fight with every conflict. You ever met someone like that? No matter what you say, they're going to try and punch you in the nose. Um, never back down from a fight, and there's not even a fight, and they're fighting. <laughs> I've, I've, I've met a lot of peace breakers like that. That, my friends, would be an example of peace-breaking, not peacemaking. But just because we don't have to run away from conflict doesn't mean that we shouldn't walk away from something that's unprofitable. That can be peacemaking. The Christian should be careful to remember that there was only one time when Jesus displayed explosive fury. Um, and it was, it was because his father's temple had become a, a, a marketplace of price gouging for poor people. Matthew 21 and John 2. So let's make an agreement before we even go on that we should not be terrified of conflict as Christians, but we also should not be fashioners of conflict as Christians. Therefore, we need to be peacemakers, like Jesus says in the Beatitude. So what then does it mean, now that we've talked about several things it doesn't mean, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? There's two ways that a Christian should be seeking to make peace. Number one, making peace between sinners and God. And number two, making peace between person and person. So, uh, in our text today, Jesus, by the way, is not presenting us with a formula Okay? He's not telling you how to be a son of God. This is not, uh, Jesus is not saying uh, uh, the peacemakers, you have to be a peacemaker, therefore you are a son of God. Instead, what he's actually saying is that a son of God will make peace. That's what most of these beatitudes do. Um, for instance, the, uh, the, the, those that are merciful shall receive mercy. If you're giving of mercy... Um, you will respond by providing more mercy. So this is kind of in that same way. Um, Jesus is telling us what a son of God does. Namely, he makes peace. Why is that, though? Why is that a hallmark of being a Christian? Peacemaking. Why, why should 
peacemaking be something a Christian innately does? Well, it's because the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is the ultimate peacemaker. Probably be praying for Anna. Um, when, you were, when you were children and you went over to a friend's house, did you ever notice similarities between the family members? Isn't that always weird? Like when, you, when, when, when you're sitting in a room and you've got like a, a bunch of siblings together, and I'm not just talk, talking about looks, like, oh man, that one looks like the mom, and that one looks like the dad, the poor soul. Uh, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking maybe they laugh at the same style of jokes, or, uh, or, or maybe they have similar mannerisms, similar motions that they do. Maybe they flail with their hands when they're talking, right? Um, I'm talking something deeper than just the words they use to describe things, right? Every family has a particular vocabulary they pull, th pull from. But something deep, something innate, some family resemblance that, that sits deep within their DNA, their cultural DNA and their actual DNA. Because all families reflect each other somehow. Even kids who are adopted into a family absorb these similarities. My wife, uh, my, my wife was adopted. I've mentioned that several times. My wife was adopted, and every once in a while when she's talking to me or doing something, I can hear or see my mother-in-law or my father-in-law. That's not a bad thing. Not saying that. Not saying my wife needs to repent. Right? That's not, <laughs> that, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying it's fascinating to look at how this family resemblance has gone into my wife and it is expressed uniquely through her. It's a beautiful picture of family and the things that they do together. So how then are we supposed to reflect our Heavenly Father and our Heavenly Family as Christians? Remember, being a Christian means that you've been adopted into the family of God, which is a great, uh, great thing to dive into. But, but we have been given full rights and privileges as a son of God. So uh, another side note, women, you're sons of God. That's weird. I get that. Men, you're the bride of Christ. Also kind of weird. <laughs> it's just the imagery used. But when we read, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, that, that, that means that, that the sons of God, those that have full access, rights, privileges to the Father, they don't have to be worried about being sold off to the highest dowry. They don't have to be worried about being thought of as second class. No, 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 no. All of us in Christ, sons of God, have full rights and privileges toward our Father. And what do we do in response? We make peace. So how are we supposed to, how are we supposed to do that? Well, first and foremost, again, uh, the family, this family, the family of God, has a call to be peacemakers, reconciling condemned sinners to the Father. Why? Because Jesus, the Son of God, did that. Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. We should be doing the same thing. Are we doing the same thing? The gospel necessitates that we do that, doesn't it? The very idea that Jesus came to die and be buried, to shed blood for our sins, means that we should want other people to have that same forgiveness, that same uh, freedom to come to God, to be called the Son of God. Jesus showed it throughout his whole earthly ministry too. Uh, he modeled it for us by coming down from heaven, which, by the way, is something he never should have had to do, right? 
speaking to various stripes of sinners, of people that he really shouldn't have ever had to find because we rebelled. God didn't have to do this. It's like, it's like when your kids are fighting and you shouldn't have to go in and break up a fight or, or when your neighbors are quarreling about something and you shouldn't have to go into that situation, but instead you do, even though you don't have to. Jesus modeled it. Jesus showed it. Jesus showed peaceably the goodness of God over and over and over again. If I were Jesus in the situations he was in, like the Pharisees coming at him, right? I wouldn't be making peace. I'd be throwing rotten fruit. Uh, I'd, be, I'd be throwing hard rocks at their faces, stoning them, you false, uh, you false teachers of the law. But instead, Jesus goes in, corrects them gently, kindly, peaceably. Are you a peacemaker between man and God? Or are you like me, where you want to throw the rocks instead of showing the peacefulness of God. So Jesus accomplished this reconciliation between God and man, right? Colossians 1.20, through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus died in order to make peace between God and man. Are we willing to do the same thing? Are we willing to go that far? to make peace between God and man. Uh, Justin Martyr. Have you guys ever heard of Justin Martyr? Martyr is not his last name, by the way. It was a title applied to him later in church history. But Justin Martyr uh, died in 165 AD. So this is 130-ish years after Jesus was crucified, right? Um, he was a trained philosopher. God saved him. And then Justin very quickly began taking his philosophical tools and using them for the glory of God. Uh, he met with people in his home all the time. He gathered with other believers secretly because the Romans were still a century later killing Christians. Century, no, sorry. A uh, hundred years later, <laughs> whatever that is. A um, hundred years later, they were, yeah, that would be century. Yeah, that is century. I'm sorry, I'm an idiot. So a century later, they're still killing Christians. So the Romans are still killing him, and, and Justin is out there meeting secretly. But that wasn't enough for him. Because in Justin's time, there were a lot of misconceptions about Christianity, a lot of misconceptions about Christian teaching especially. For instance, when we gathered at the communion table, it was called a, 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 an agape feast or a love feast. Now, if you're in a pagan culture and you hear the word love feast, you don't think gathering and eating some bread and wine. That's not what comes to mind. You think about like the, temp the temples of Aphrodite where there's a lot of cult prostitution going on. That's what you think of. So there, were, there was all this like misconceptions still a century later of what Christianity was. And so Justin started writing about it. Not, he, he went to places to argue philosophy, but he also started writing publicly about it. He wrote two apologies, which means a defense of the Christian faith or in his case, a defense of Christian doctrine, uh, defending why Christians meet on Sunday instead of Saturday, defending um, uh, why, uh, what, what an agape feast is. He, he wrote on several subjects, and it was actually addressed to the Roman emperor Antonius Pius, which is a really funny name for a Roman emperor. Um, but the second apology he wrote was what got him killed. 
he wrote out actually about several injustices that were occurring where Christians, for, having a, for, for believing in moral purity and a necessity of being pure in heart, he pointed to several injustices that the Roman government in his area was doing. It, specifically, his own prefect, which was like a mayor, but you don't elect the mayor. The mayor gets chosen for you because he's a Roman centurion that served a lot of years and he wants a cush job, right? So you don't choose your prefect, and talking out against the prefect, not a good deal because he controls the government. So he writes about how Christians were being killed for their moral purity. One, one such example was a wife who became a Christian and she didn't want to engage in, uh, in, 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 in bad practices with her husband that were morally, biblically unprecedented. So he writes out against this wife who was killed for this um, and the, uh, the mayor didn't like it. So Justin was trying to create peace in his community. He was trying to help people understand Christianity while also showing, no, 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 like we're being persecuted too. Um, and it ended up costing him his life. He had a handful of other Christians that met with him to worship God and grow in Christ, and they were killed together. I actually, uh, in one of, my, one of my books, I have the account of his final... Um, interrogation, uh, probably the most reliable one, and le legitimately, he, you're given the option to either confess or recant. You don't have the option to defend yourself. It's confess or recant. And so he confessed, and therefore he was killed. Thus the title martyr. So Justin's goal was always to proclaim Christ and his gospel. He went uh, to places of philosophical discussion. He engaged in conversation publicly. He opened his home to discipling others. And like Jesus, Justice wanted, or Justin wanted to make peace between God and man, reconciling them with the gospel to be called a son of God. So Justin, I, by the way, I'm not telling you to go ahead and write your congressman of injustices. That's not what I'm saying. That's <laughs> but, but Justin's goal was always to preach the gospel, to reconcile man with God, to give them the good news of Jesus Christ. But, and he knew, he knew that he would suffer mock and scorn and ridicule at, at best and death at worst. Are you willing to go that far? And I, I, I mean that seriously because most of us don't even want to look weird at Walmart, and that's saying something, all right? Walmart's got quite a history. But we don't like to look weird at Walmart and the grocery store. We don't like to look strange at all, much less try and form relationships with sinners like Justin Martyr or like Jesus or like any of the great disciplers of, of our time. So why not join a bowling league or a group at a senior center, right, that's non-Christian? Why not enroll your kids, grandkids, in non-Christian sports leagues and clubs? Save for COVID. Uh, <laughs> but but why, why not get to talk with other parents who are not Christian? Why not try and engage ourselves, like Jesus, with sinners in order to reconcile them with God? My wife has been doing this at parks, not like going and go, like handing out gospel tracts. Because that's, that's the sort of weird that just makes people walk away. Because when they get that million-dollar bill, you guys know the gospel tract I'm talking about, the million-dollar question. Uh, when they get that, people are like, oh, you gave me my, what disappointment I have in Christians. 
I have one at my desk. I can take it out. Somebody, somebody left it in there. It's, it's, it's the greatest Jesus juke of all time. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so, um, so, so my wife has been going to parks, and she's talking with other parents, and I'm really proud of her for it, honestly, uh, because it gives her the chance to show these other parents that Christians are not like socially disengaged, but instead that we're, we're in the community too. Meanwhile, my kids are shoving each other off slides. And anyway, uh, not her fault. That's my kids. Um, but if we are to be peacemakers, we have to see a need of people being reconciled with God. Currently, most people, I, I think that's a fair metric, most people are enemies of God. They deal in hatred against him, and one day God will repay that hatred with perfect and pure judgment. Do you see the predicament there? They need to know how wonderful Jesus is. Are you willing to show them? Then aim to make peace. But we should also be doing this not just between God and man, right? This isn't just preach the gospel to people. It's also show the gospel to people. So we should be doing this between persons who are in disagreement. Think, think of Jesus' bunch of disciples, right? You've got, you've got a zealot. You've got a bunch of fishermen. Uh, you've got a tax collector. I mean, those, those guys would not be close. <laughs> they just wouldn't. Um, the, 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 the tax collector would be hated by everyone because he's a tax collector. The fishermen would have stuck together while complaining about the others and their cheapness towards their hard-caught fish. And why can't I get a better price for this down at the market? Um, why, why aren't these people willing to pay more? And then the zealot would be inciting violence and riots because they're hated by everyone else. And they hate everyone for not being ardent enough in their faith. A zealot, by the way, was essentially an anarchist for Judaism. Um, they, they, they would go and they would burn down Roman buildings. They would knock over statues. They would, they would do essentially what uh, we're watching in major cities right now. They were zealots. So even our rioters right now are zealots for a particular cause. Whatever it is, I don't know. The message isn't really clear, but it wasn't very clear in Jesus' time either. So all in all, these men, these, these 12 men, would not have made very good dinner guests, and honestly, they would have made much worse friends. But then here stands Jesus, one who's united them, called them friends, made them brothers, training them for a singular purpose, and few of them were well-educated, and none of them were outstanding. And yet Jesus brought them together. Jesus united them. He made peace between them, probably all the time with the zealot. You know who I'm talking about. You know those guys. Anyway, <laughs> um, by bringing them together he, and, and uniting them, Jesus was an incredible peacemaker, the ultimate peacemaker. And another example, not just of the uh, 12 of Jesus' reconciling work between people and people, would have to be Paul. Prior to his conversion, uh, and this is his own words, he, was, uh, he says, formerly, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. Probably, probably, probably in our minds, we wouldn't want to convert that guy, right? We would say he is too far gone. That neighbor that you know sits in his garage reloading his shotgun shells, and glaring at you while his you know, dog is there on the chain right next to him, glaring at you too. 
I may or may not be describing a very specific instance of walking down that street. Uh, <laughs> but you look at them and you're like, man, you're too far gone. You're not going to make it. Paul was that dude. But then he goes on to say, and he's writing this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1. He says, uh, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. So Jesus took Saul of Tarsus, a rising star in the Jewish world and a murderer of Christians, and he redeemed him. Saul of Tarsus started going by his Greek name, Paul. It is, by the way, his name. Uh, God didn't change his name. That's another conversation for another time. We can walk through the Acts 9 through 12. But, but, but he went by his Greek name because he was the, uh, the apostle to the Gentiles, right? Um, but he was still constantly suspected of being a double agent. Because that's how they did it, right? They would send somebody who wanted to be a worshiper, found a group of Christians, they went to that house where they were worshiping God, and then they went and reported back to the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin sent a kill party and killed all the Christians. So um, he, Paul, uh, Paul was thought to be a double agent. He was dastardly, right? And so much so that Jesus had to appear before Ananias, the guy who was going to go to him and comfort him. Jesus himself had to go to Ananias and say, hey, go find this guy, this guy named Saul. And Ananias is like, nah, man, ain't going to happen. Uh, he, Acts, Acts chapter 9, Ananias, but Ananias answers back to Jesus. He says, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord says to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. But Paul was reconciled. Ananias was terrified of Paul. For good reason, too. Yet Jesus intended to reconcile these two men and have them spend some time together, which is Acts 9.19 in Damascus. Paul ended up training under Peter. He was trained under Gamaliel, right? One of the best Jewish Pharisees of the time, but he had to be trained, or not had to be, but he trained still as an apostle. What a wonderful thing. Peter and Paul, in the grand scheme of things, they should have been hated enemies, right? They should have been the ones that are taking up arms against each other, trying to kill each other, but they weren't because Jesus made peace between them. He was the peace between them. And when Paul goes to Jerusalem, the disciples, by the way, are still suspecting that he isn't who he says he is. So Barnabas, right, who's named as an apostle in Acts 14 later, but Barnabas brings Paul to them. Paul and Barnabas become good friends, and then what ends up happening? They have a disagreement, and they split. That doesn't sound like much peace, but through God's incredible reconciling work, they work together in Corinth, in Colossae, and Paul even mentions him kindly to Timothy. So Paul's a great example. Paul was very much hated, by the way. <laughs> but Paul, Paul keeps having God work in him to reconcile him to others. From person to person, that's shown. So what, what do those examples have to do with us? 
Listen, if God can reconcile men like the apostles, men like Paul and Ananias, Paul and Barnabas, then who can he reconcile you to? Who, should, who, who is it that you have broken bonds with? Or that you wish God would repair the relationship, fix it, reunite you guys? Who do you need to make peace with? Is it a friend or a family member? A neighbor? Did something bad to you one, one time, maybe 15 times? Maybe 700 times they did bad things to you. Maybe they were kicking over, the, kicking over your fence. Or, uh, or, or throwing a weed seed in your yard. Whatever they were doing, who do you need to make peace with? Because as Christians, we need to be making peace with those around us. We need to stand in the gap of disagreements. Taking blows from all sides, like victims of a beating. But friends, that glorifies God. Why? Because that happened to Jesus. Jesus took the blows for our sins reconciling us with each other. If you think about it, most people that are friends in the church don't have much in common. But they're united by an unbreakable bond of Jesus' blood, reconciling us with one another and with God. Only when we desire to take our grudges and bury them in a coffin fashioned with the gospel and hammered with the nails of God's promises of reconciliation can we rightly be called sons of God. Who calls us sons of God, by the way? It's God. God calls us sons of God. God looks at us and says, son. Only then do we mirror the work of Jesus Christ, the one who has made peace without compromising truth. So, in conclusion, how do we put those things together, right? Making peace with God and man and making peace with man to man. How do, we, how do we put those together? Well, one, we have to long for peace. Do you long for peace? Do you have a deep desire to see peace made? Who do you know that's perishing that needs the gospel of peace? Remember, God is a God of peace, so much so that he, he made peace with his own blood. Colossians 1.20 again. We need to personally, individually, and corporately long for peace. We have to want peace because if we don't, we will never apply peace. We will remain warmongers. It's a general truth. We won't repent of things until we see it is wrong. So we have to recognize that our warmongering is sin in light of this statement that sons of God must be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Friends, creating strife or being prejudiced or, or, or um, spewing hate-filled words toward others made in the image of God is sin. It is. It really is. We have to long for peace. And number two, we have to work for peace. Because just longing for something isn't going to make anything happen. A longing is worthless until it produces a work. I might long for my grass to be cut. This is a bad example because I didn't cut it. Alan did it for me. But, but I might long for my grass to be cut, but until I work for the actual cutting of the grass, it's going to keep growing. Sometimes the work is too much. 
There can be no peace made. Or we fail miserably and make things much worse. Yeah, mm-hmm. I heard him, mm-hmm. That's me right here so much by God's grace. But that really is our work as sons of God, is making peace. So seek reconciliation between parties. Form relationships with your neighbors, your baristas, your grocery clerks. Not really now because there's COVID. It really makes things hard. Like you can't apply sermon things anymore. It's like got to avoid people. Don't know people. Don't get to know them, but get to know them. Anyway, but, but seek, seek relationships with those around you. Anyone, anyone who needs to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And that, involves, that includes each other. We have to be reminded of that. What Jesus has done for us in the shedding of his blood, making peace between his Father and us and giving us the ability to then call him Father and to make peace with others. Make peace. If you are a son of God, make peace. It reflects your Lord and it glorifies him more than, than almost anything else in this world right now. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you have made peace between me and you. You have made peace between your people and you because there's no other way by which we may, may turn to you and call you Father. Instead, we stand in complete and utter judgment. Reading the laws and how much I break in spirit is, is, is just absolutely illuminating to how atrocious of a person I can be and how atrocious of a person we all are. God, we, we were hopeless without you coming when you shouldn't have had to and seeking us. So God, I pray that we would respond to that by being peacemakers, that we would look at the, 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 the politics of today, the arguments of today, the, the, the craziness of today, and seek to reconcile parties that without your gospel could never be reconciled. May we be a, a church that knows and lives by that. May we seek peace. May we make peace. In Jesus' name, amen. May the things which charm us most be laid in the blood of Jesus, cleansed from us, and that includes our controversies. May we be united by peace through the shedding of his blood. Go in peace, saints.